This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Roadmap Writers is a screenwriting education and training platform for writers looking for a guided path to success. Programs are hosted by working industry executives and are designed to empower writers with actionable tools and insights to elevate their craft and cultivate industry relationships. Since 2016, Roadmap has helped more than 84 writers sign to representation and countless others get staffed, optioned, or sell their script. To learn more, visit RoadmapWriters.com and use the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, to save $15. Roadmap Writers, the road to your screenwriting success starts here. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about TV Pros 201, specifically delving into the nuances of editorializing your prose on the page and a look at the many useful techniques you can use to break those rules. So last time back in PT48, which was TV Prose and Scene Description 101, we kind of covered the basics of prose and screenwriting and the general guidelines for how to write your action and description on the page. Now we want to take a look at when it's okay to break some of those rules and lean into the more unconventional and unique ways of conveying information to the reader on the page. Right. And what led us to this topic is, uh, at least on my part, uh, personal experience, because I've been writing now for a month this script that is essentially the most editorialized or uh, at least edgier piece of material I've written so far. And I'm usually used to being more constrained and restrained in the prose. And uh, this piece of material is so edgy and so out there that I've, I've sort of been on this quest to explore less traditional and more editorialized in your face kind of prose writing that aren't just about the description, but more so the emotion, uh, kind of like your Ryan Murphy, your Damon Lindelof, uh, even your, your Phoebe Walbridge. And it's been really interesting to dig into the scripts and to see sort of what makes them tick in that capacity. Yeah, totally. I found a similar thing in my writing just as time goes on. I started out with a very strict notion of, well, this is exactly how it needs to be done. And anything outside of that is amateurish or cheesy or whatever. But, you know, I think the more that you read and you consume and watch and learn, you realize that there are some really great ways to do that. And it can add quite a lot to the experience of reading a script when it's done well. Yeah. And I definitely feel like there's a movement now. And then obviously, uh, the earliest indication of that was Shane Black back in the day. But even now, when you look at TV scripts and and movie scripts and, uh, and spec scripts, there's movement now where a lot of that prose is very familiar. Going back to Lost, I feel like that was the big temple show and all the bad robot uh, shows that followed all use that very familiar action-driven prose with those double dashes and that led the viewer and the the audience and the reader into the character dynamics, but also what was happening on screen in a way that up until that point was much more reserved, especially if you look at scripts for, let's say, Law and Order in the 90s or the X-Files, that was much more restrained. Yeah, I think just like novels or poetry or any other kind of form of writing and art, uh, screenwriting and television writing goes through kind of styles and phases and then what's popular and what's more commonly accepted these days. And I think that we have moved quite a bit away from the old fashioned style of more straight up kind of down the line. Here's exactly what you can see on screen, even to the point of calling out a lot of visuals and shots towards more of this informal 
very familiar, you know, almost like you're telling a story to your friend. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like, again, it ties back to the showrunners imparting that style to their room. Uh, I've definitely seen it in, in drama writers' rooms. I'm not sure if uh, if you feel the same way on, on the comedy side, but to that idea of sort of telling a cool story, I feel like that is almost the, the bad robot uh, ethos in a way when they're pitching the stories. It's kind of like, oh, we're hanging out at a barbecue with friends, and uh, let me tell you this awesome story about this guy who wakes up in the jungle. And Shinbak is very similar in that style, but much more perhaps self-referential. It's still that capacity of, let me tell you this cool story, and then this thing happens, and that thing happens, and it's very momentum-driven as opposed to descriptive. All right, so the first thing we want to get into is this notion of editorializing in the prose and the description. Now, when we say editorializing, we are referring to the notion of, you know, in a newspaper, a piece would be called an editorial when it was essentially an opinion piece by the editor of the newspaper. And so they're offering their personal opinions, their influences, their kind of, you know, biases, that sort of thing. They're not offering it up as here is fact and straight reporting. It is it is necessarily drawn from the experiences and the, uh, the biased nature of, you know, this one person's voice and opinion and their point of view. So that's what we kind of mean. Absolutely. And and to that idea, I feel like the difference here lies in the difference between something we talked about in uh, TV Pros 101, which was this idea that a script is essentially a technical document to be produced. It's this objective document about things that are happening, this action on screen that needs to be shot in a specific way. And that was sort of the one of the biggest takeaways of TV Pros 101 and one of the earliest rules that you learn or are taught in the screenwriting schools. But uh, at the same time, you got to remember that a script still needs to provide that compelling experience, that compelling journey that is going to lead the reader to turn the page and the next page after that and really finish your script and be engaged in the story and the narratives. Yeah, and I think that one of the reasons perhaps why we've le- now leaned more towards this style is because they're, you know, for the most part, you are writing things on spec and you're trying to get them noticed. And so first and foremost, you need something to be entertaining and to grab people's attention. It's all well and good to write a very technical down the line document for people to film. But if, if no one ever gets excited enough about it to actually want to buy it and or option it or and go and film it or, you know, whatever it happens to be, then you're not going to get anywhere. So I think that, you know, it's led towards this kind of bias and make something very uh, attention grabbing first and foremost and worry about the details later. Absolutely. And there's no better way of a better indicator of that than and comparing the two ends of the spectrum when it comes to prose writing and those descriptions. And on one end of the spectrum, you have the more dry prose about stating facts. Alien is a classic example of something that just states very minimalistically the facts of the action that is taking place on screen. And another example that I always go back to is uh, How to Get Away with Murder, which is very editorialized. And I can even give you a snippet now of a script uh, from uh, the second season of How to Get Away with Murder, which may not be the greatest example of editorializing, but it gives you at least an idea of the familiarity of the prose that they use. And this is a very small snippet, but in it, it says, Annalise suddenly stops down the hall, A.D. Emily Sinclair on her cell. Annalise glares. This bitch right there. She knows she should ignore her, keep moving, but today she's got no patience. 
she marches over. So just the this right here <laughs> is clearly not something you would find in the, let's say 1950s era movie script. It's very much uh, editorialized in that capacity, and we'll we'll dig deeper into what that means uh, later in this episode. But really, think about sort of the contrast between uh, again. I, I keep referring to Alien, but I feel like that's the best example of famously minimalistic script that only describes the action, as opposed to something that's about the experience and the emotion that that prose uh, elicits in the reader. Right, and like Alex said, we'll get into more detail in a minute. But one thing I want to point out there is that in communicating that particular kind of emotion and, and thoughts that are going through her head, what you're doing is avoiding the need to get into the minutia of the physicality, kind of swinging it to the other end where you're like, her face wrinkles up and she stares out with a hard glare. And, you know, it's kind of like stuff that you're telling the actor how to act and how to express their face to communicate what you're trying to say anyway, which is just that she has no time for this woman. So why don't you just say that? Exactly, exactly. And uh, I also want to compare two other examples of something that's perhaps more evocative sex scenes in shows and in movies. And I did want to talk about, the on one end, The Girlfriend Experience, which is a Star's TV show with uh, one of the scripts that I've been reading for my research, which is The Rules of Attraction, based on the Brad Easton Ellis book. And that was a feature in the early 2000s, I'm sure you remember, with... Uh, James Vanderbeek. Exactly. Awesome. And, uh, and uh, many other people that were going against their sort of a type. Let's just compare these two extracts. And uh, if you want uh, Nick to read read the, the first uh, girlfriend extract. Christine and a man, Jack, early 30s, can be seen engaging in various explicit sexual acts. The man's face has been blurred. He can be heard talking to her while f***ing. So there you go. It's literally describing the action on screen. It's uh, pretty minimalistic. There's no emotion in it. It's just describing what is happening in that moment, as opposed to something from Rules of Attraction that goes... She looks back, kind of annoyed, and sure enough, she's being f from behind. Grunt, grunt, grunt. With every exhalation comes a thrust. She starts moaning with every plunge into her. So that's much more from the perspective of that character. We're living, so to speak, that moment, which uh, within the script is uh, more shocking from her perspective. And it goes back to this idea that the prose at the end of the day isn't literally about directing the camera or directing what we're seeing on screen. It's about directing the audience and the viewer. It's about giving them the cathartic experience or at least the same journey that hopefully your characters are experiencing. And it goes back to what we've said many times before in this podcast, just this idea of perspective and giving an idea of perspective. The girlfriend experience, unlike Rules of Attraction, is meant to be sort of this objective, third-person, cold heart look at this character going through her journey and sort of uh, going down the rabbit hole of being a, a sex worker, as opposed to Rules of Attraction, which if you've seen the movie, you know it's all about perspective. It's all about that first-person viewpoint. There's a lot of uh, meta elements in the narration, uh, whether that's a voiceover from the characters, whether it's literally having titles on screen saying that this is the segment from this character's point of view. Uh, and this is obviously uh, one of those segments and you get to live that moment through her perspective. And so that's what the pros can do for you. Right. It's making it impersonal versus personal, you know, delving into the visceralness of that and what that character is feeling versus, you know, this more uh, removed, you know, objectivity from it, like you said. And so the thing with a technique like this is that you can lean into the fact that the writer doesn't need to have all the answers either when we're looking at minimalism versus how descriptive you want to be. You can get away with something like Sebastian reading some kind of high art pretentious English literature and then allow the director or the props department or whoever to figure out what that is. Sometimes the specifics themselves don't 
don't matter, just the intention or the meaning behind it. Personally, I've used specifics when it mattered, whether thematically or with a character. The example you just gave, Sebastian reading some kind of high art pretentious English literature is one idea that gives you about who Sebastian is, but maybe there's a specific point in the, the story that's tied to the kind of high art pretentious English literature he's reading. Maybe your show is kind of like lost, tied to specific philosophers or uh, books that are very uh, much tied to the themes of your show. So maybe you want to name your those books, especially if they're very well known in the script. But again, it's only if it's worthwhile for you on a, on a character level, on a theme level, and also on a story level. And to some extent, there is that notion of Chekhov's gun too. If you introduce an element and you bother to go into the specifics of it and say, here is this thing, then uh, there's an expectation from the audience that that's going to be paid off in some way, You know, whether it is in a thematic manner or whether it isn't in a more real narrative manner. If you specifically name uh, some book, then uh, you're going to have to use that. Otherwise, why did you mention it by name? Absolutely. And I feel like, I mean, that's the prime example of one of the, uh, I keep going back to Lost, but I feel like that's the, the best well of those examples in terms of a show that that used a lot of those Chekhov's guns books and uh, references to specific pieces of popular culture that people thought were going to tie into the show and never really did. It was more a wink-wink, oh, we have uh, someone reading Watership Down in this very specific episode because maybe Sawyer feels like one of the rabbits in, in the book or something like that. It's not something deeper in the way that a mythology could be. So really think hard about whether or not you need those elements in your prose. The other element to point out about editorializing your prose is whether or not you want to explain the meaning behind what is happening on screen. Right. You can kind of go one of two ways. You can just write something and put out a visual or an image or a piece of action and allow the audience to make their own conclusions from that or draw their own interpretations from that. On the other side of that, you can kind of put two and two together for the audience. You can literally write into the description, you know, John realizing his life is about to change forever or a man whose world is falling apart in front of his eyes, you know, this might be if you really don't want the audience to miss whatever just happened, or it might just be that you want to be very clear and direct about this is the emotion, the experience at this moment. And I, you know, it's important that everybody realizes that. Yeah. And I want to give another example of how to get with murder that definitely illustrates this angle of, especially when it comes to a reveal or a character moment of processing that information, highlighting it in the prose. So here's the excerpt from uh, how to get with murder. I don't want to talk about it. I wouldn't either. It doesn't make sense. All this craziness to protect some student. He's not just a student. Mm -hmm. This is the prose. Holy shit. Eve's face falls because one, she knows what this means. And two, whatever the meaning is, it's earth shattering to the both of them. Eve. No. Annalise nods. It's him. And suddenly Eve understands it all. Understands Annalise. And it touches her in a very emotional, bittersweet, prideful way. Yeah, that's a great example of exactly what we're just talking about. And it's a very common technique to say stuff uh, in, in the description like off X, for example, off Sarah, deeply hurt, or off Joe's reaction. It kind of means that we end the scene with a reaction shot from this character. It's, it's also, you know, so very common and overdone in like soap operas where you just get like reaction shot after reaction shot of all the characters. Uh, and from a practical perspective, it just kind of feels more impactful as a button at the end of a scene on the page than just saying, you know, she looks away and then you end the scene. It's like you're really summing up here was the meaning of the whole scene and here's how it impacts the story. Absolutely. And that's why often when you read uh, scripts, especially TV scripts, you'll find the end of those scenes to be prose, not dialogue, even though uh, when you're watching a show, when it's edited, those scenes usually end uh, more with a dialogue beat than just a dramatic shot necessarily. But in the prose, it's important to emphasize that 
that, especially when you've got so many scripts and pages to read, holding the reader's hand a little bit and sort of uh, uh, bringing them to understand what the underlying emotion and reaction that we should be feeling definitely helps with uh, the cathartic story. Right. And the nice thing about it is that it's not going to typically feel like you're being hit over the head with it because this is only on the page. And it's helping get everybody else on that same page as you when it's being produced so that they can do it in a more subtle and nuanced way on the screen. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like the, the risk to that idea is maybe going overboard. I feel like especially if you're a more nascent uh, screenwriter, the danger that you're facing when you're editorializing to that extent is that you're hitting the reader over the head with something that they should understand themselves uh, organically or worse, you are verbalizing on the page an emotion that you think the reader is feeling, but in fact, the reader is completely disconnected from that emotion, and in which case, it even worsens that disconnect, because you're saying, oh, we should be feeling sad, and if uh, I, as a reader, I'm not feeling sad at all, then I'm going to be like, why are you stating what I should be feeling? That's not at all a good writing. Yeah, it's definitely a fine line to walk, and the scene itself still needs to execute on whatever it is that you decide to sum up in the prose at the end. You can't just throw it in and be like, and now she's sad. And, you know, at the same time, if you've already made abundantly clear from everything that's happened in the scene that this is what's going on, then you don't want to, like you said, Alex, keep handing them over the head with it because it's going to feel like you don't trust the reader or the audience to put two and two together. So it really is a judgment call on uh, how that all works. And I wouldn't recommend doing it at the end of every scene. I think it really is just for these really big, important moments. And aside from just kind of like emotional impact and feeling that you're calling out in the script, another thing that you can use uh, this level of editorialization for is pointing out more thematic meaning or some sort of irony or narrative conclusion. Uh, one example of this is the last page of the pilot for Fleabag by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And the excerpt from that reads, he looks at her in the rearview mirror. She drunkenly and sadly smiles. He drives on in silence. Her coat falls open. She only has her bra on underneath. She pulls out the little tin sculpture of the woman with no arms. It sits on her lap. And then the next paragraph is two women, one real, one not, both with their innate femininity out. End. So there she's really calling out the, the whole thematic meaning of this and, and this kind of tableau that she's presenting at the end of the whole thing, which is, you know, speaks to the whole theme of the show. And I feel like that leads us to the next element of editorializing, which is the familiarity of the prose and uh, this idea of being more informal as opposed to being conservative. And the example that you have about Fleabag is interesting because I feel like the two major spots, especially in a TV script where you have more freedom to be a little bit less conservative and editorialize a little bit more, are ends of act, specifically ends of a pilot, and character descriptions. Those are the two places where I would say nine times out of 10, you have and you should have the freedom to essentially write what you want and state what you want in terms of giving us an idea of those people beyond just literally what we're seeing on screen. When I think about all the pilots, all the scripts that I've written that have landed the best with uh, readers and uh, that have gotten me the most meetings, they're the ones that use the editorializing in such a way that when they finish the script, they feel those emotions and it lands that moment beyond just stating what's happening, but truly almost on a poetry level in the same way that you described the tableau of, of Fleabag in, in that deeper way than just, uh, oh, these two people in a cab uh, looking at each other. Yeah, exactly. And it's honestly one thing that a lot of writers don't use enough. You know, when I'm reading the friend scripts, uh, paper tea submissions, whatever it happens to be, a lot of people just kind of blow through the character description and give us a name and an age, maybe some vague physical descriptor. But what you can really take the opportunity to do there is give 
give us an insight into their deeper kind of psyche and how they think about the world and what makes them special and unique and interesting and conflicted. Because it's going to feel weird if you try to throw that in halfway through the script that, you know, deep down she's conflicted about whatever. But, you know, you, you like you said, Alex, you do get a kind of a free pass here to ramble on for a paragraph about what this character is like fundamentally. And that's going to influence all of our reading of their lines and their actions throughout the rest of the script. Yeah. And you can check our uh, TV characters 101 episode that's uh, PT46 for more on that. But essentially, when it comes down to the prose and, uh, and character descriptions and character introductions, it's either going to be that character description that's going to be much more evocative of what they're doing that signifies who they are as people, or it could be literally stating something that predates essentially the show, predates what's happening on screen, whether it's the kind of person they are, whether it's the kind of uh, clothes that they wear, assuming that it means something. Nonetheless, that is the one point in the script where people are going to remember those characters based on that introduction. If you think about all the most iconic characters on TV, I bet you that the top scene that you have in mind concerning them relates to something that happened to them in the pilot. Whether that's uh, Walter White in the middle of the road with a gun or Jamie Lannister uh, with uh, his sister. Those are two uh, great examples of uh, heroes that we should all uh, aspire to be. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a ton of different techniques you can use when it comes to this kind of like notion of familiarity in the prose and, and being informal. Uh, one of them you'll see quite often is basically the writer making jokes or using humor or kind of calling things out as they are being introduced in the script. And that might be kind of poking fun at the character for something that's in their apartment or commenting on how they dress themselves or whatever. And in that way, the, I guess the writer is kind of putting themselves on the side of the audience and going, hey, I'm experiencing this with you. And like, what's with this thing? And in and, and, and another way it also kind of gives them the opportunity to hang a lantern on certain things and be like yes of course this character is xyz you know i think a lot of people can call out their own not insecurities but the things that they think might be worth commenting on in the script and say yes i acknowledge that this seems like a trope but here's why it's not yeah and another element that personally in my own writing i've uh, I've struggled with is the use of vulgarity specifically in the prose uh, because maybe i was raised uh, reading too many (laughs) bad robot scripts but a lot of those bad robot scripts have so much vulgarity that it really turned me off from uh, using them in my own description Uh, but sometimes it's very effective especially when you're trying to land uh, that moment of that action uh, uh, see earlier in this very episode when we talked about sex acts using the word is very impactful as opposed to just saying oh they make love or whatever else Uh, and uh, so i feel like using in a sentence and i know we've uh, probably said more f words in this episode than the the entire 155 (laughs) probably we'll see we'll see about that we'll fix it in post (laughs) (laughs) but the point is that sometimes it's very effective to use a well-placed if it really punctuates a sentence or punctuates an emotion in the same way that we've used all the tools that we mentioned so far. Yeah, I think it also helps speak to the tone of the show and the characters and the world. If you are frequently delving into vulgarity, uh, it kind of suggests more of an adult, mature, dark, gritty world, or, you know, can be used to juxtapose if it, if it seems like it's actually a very family-friendly, children are running around, everything's happy and wonderful, and then you have someone come in swearing or you start swearing in the prose, then you're, you're deliberately playing against the subversion of expectations with that. One more thing that you'll quite often see with this editorialization is is when the writer asks questions of the audience, usually, you know, they already know the answers themselves. They're kind of calling out these rhetorical questions or whatever, as though they are putting themselves in your point of view and being like, you know, this person hides something under the floorboards. Why did she just do that? 
or, you know, whatever it happens to be like, what's going on here? Those kind of questions. Yeah. And that ties back to, again, putting the audience in either the character's perspective or at least a, a meta perspective where you're supposed to be asking those questions and you're not supposed to know the answers just yet. And so it's more of like a, a tune in kind of element in the prose that's going to hopefully keep you reading. But that's another thing that should be used, in my opinion, at least sparingly in the sense of you don't want to run the risk of asking a question that nobody cares about. Uh, so use them efficiently. I feel like that's the, the big takeaway. Yeah, I think a lot of these techniques are very divisive among readers and everybody has their own opinions about them. Again, it comes down to how it's executed, but there will be some people who will just close your script if you're asking too many of those questions to the reader and be like, I don't enjoy this this style of storytelling and it really turns me off and I'm not going to read that. So just be aware that uh, they are potentially divisive. So use them carefully and use them well. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's why I've never read a script of yours, Nick. You've completely alienated me with all those uh, informal uh, vulgarity. It's literally just F word after F word every single <laughs> sentence. I can't believe it. Yeah, I guess that's what happens when you write your entire first page is just F words from top to bottom. There's no, no, no characters, no description. It's just that word over and over again. Was it a message to me or was it a script? <laughs> Both. <laughs> So one of the most common things that people will think about when looking at editorializing a script is directing on the page, pointing out camera moves, things like that, what the audience is seeing. Absolutely. And it ties back to, again, this idea of the camera being our point of view. If you are using actual directing elements within your script, it needs to be used either from a character perspective or a narrative perspective. For example, if you're using POV shots, there should be a reason why we're actually seeing this element from the point of view of someone. Maybe it's also an extreme close-up. Maybe you're writing a detective story and the detective just noticed that Nick had blood on his shirt. Why do you have blood on your shirt? What's happening here? And we do an extreme close-up on Nick's blood-stained shirt because apparently that's all he wears every day. <laughs> In any case, that's the point is, we want to lead the audience into thinking, why does Nick have a plastic shirt <laughs> instead of something else? And I feel like those directing elements within the page lead us to ask those questions in an organic way. And a lot of the time what you're doing is playing with how much information the audience has and then how you're delivering it to them. So you're putting the camera somewhere where you're obscuring something or you're about to reveal something or we're slowly kind of realizing that a situation is different than you think it is. It's all about those expectations and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And one of the, the best genres to use that technique is, of course, horror. And I, I would highly recommend people to read uh, the scripts for Hereditary and Midsummer because those are truly masterclasses in terms of camera positioning within the script without overly directing. Even though the writer of those movies is also the director, the great thing about those scripts is that in the prose, it's naturally framed in such a way that you feel the tension building and the way the frame is uh, focused on elements that are meant to scare you by definition of uh, the things that you're not seeing, not say the things you are seeing. This is definitely one of those techniques that at the base level, when you're first learning about screenwriting and reading books and taking classes, people will warn you off against and say, do not direct the camera. Don't tell us what the shots are. Don't tell us where we're cutting to, what we're zooming in on or panning, dulling, all that kind of thing. And there is some wisdom to that. And you, when you're first starting, they really want you to be focusing more on the story and what the actual scene says in and of itself narratively without having to resort to those sort of things. But then again, once you come to a greater understanding of it, 
and uh, know how to use them properly, I think they can be quite effective. Absolutely. And you can look at, again, the script of rules of attraction, which is another example of a script that used those directing techniques over and over again, specifically because Roger Avery uh, directed the movie. So he was essentially writing it for himself. But for example, you have uh, within a single scene, and I'm just uh, giving you highlights. Yeah, I'm not reading the entire thing, but close on the guy who might be a ceramics major. Quick pen, trek in on Lauren, trying to keep focus and nodding. Quick tilt to reveal a poster of a giant smiling Ronald Reagan. Wide on, Lauren and the possible ceramics major. Swish pan and track in on the Louis Brooks looking Christine Nonfeth. Close on Lauren knowing that if she wants this guy who might be an NYU film major, she's going to have to make a move. Those description techniques and uh, those directing techniques are all within a single scene because if you actually watch the movie, you will see that it's almost like a meta narrative where those uh, camera pans are not just about directing, but they're about revealing elements of the character, the way they're feeling, what they're looking at, who they're looking at, why they're looking at someone in a specific way, and all of that mixed into a specific cohesive whole of a scene. Yeah, and in that movie as well, the kind of physicality of the camera and where and how it moves is almost a character in and of itself and contributes to the whole tone and style of the movie. So, you know, there's a very specific reason why it's being portrayed like that. Right. And to that idea, I feel like it's worth emphasizing again that the reason why you would be using any of the techniques that we are mentioning, including directing something on the page, is to match the tone of that narrative of that story. What do you want the reader to feel? What do you want the reader to see and hear and live? And I feel like that's why you want to be directing on the page hopefully sporadically, not something that you will do every line. But if that is your intent, then embrace it. If that's not your intent, if you don't need a reason to be directing, then don't direct just to direct. Okay, someone else is going to be directing that show, that script or that spec. So you don't have to do it on your script. But if you are actually going to use it, then use it with purpose and with a reason. Another element in terms of uh, directing on the page to that idea is just uh, what I would call meta directing. So elements of freeze framing or uh, using flashbacks within the scene or memory pops as a how to get away with murder use. It's elements that are beyond just what is happening linearly in the story. It's elements that supersede the content of the story and are really there to give the audience something extra. And uh, it also matches the tone. Yeah, sometimes you'll see text come up on the thing and be like, character name, uh, interests, you know, like uh, what if it's a superhero movie, what their superpower is, that kind of thing when they're, you know, again, playing into the tone, but also needing to convey information that it wouldn't really be convenient to just uh, happen to express at that moment in the dialogue or in the action. Right. And the best use of uh, those examples I've seen have always been, again, tying it to the tone, especially if you had something like, let's say, Guardians of the Galaxy or a very comedic uh, movie or like show. Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Exactly. And using those uh, superimposed titles or freeze frames or flashbacks within the context of the story is meant to emphasize the humor as well as reveal characters and plot points in, in some capacity, as opposed to just a flashy, gimmicky narrative device that's only there to add exposition. Yeah. If you're just telling us information that we already know or could easily know in some other way, you probably shouldn't be using that device. Yeah. One of the worst examples would be uh, the Suicide Squad opener that just uh, freeze frame every single villain, I guess, or heroes of the story and uh, literally gave us essays to read on screen for one second between each character. And it's like, who's going to actually freeze frame the DVD of uh, Suicide Squad to read what... Uh, who's uh, going to buy the DVD? So yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think they really overestimated the attention span of their audience there. <laughs>
So speaking of meta elements when it comes to uh, your scripts and your stories on screen, another super common thing is the idea of breaking the fourth wall, speaking directly to the reader or the audience in that wink-wink kind of way. Absolutely. And I want to refer to another feature script that is arguably pretty controversial, and it's called The Hunt. And The Hunt, if you don't know, was uh, written by Damon Lindelof and Nick Hughes, Colton Hughes' son, and they wrote this movie, The Hunt for Blumhouse. Essentially, it's about people waking up in a forest and uh, they've been kidnapped and they're being hunted, kind of like men's uh, most dangerous game. Blumhouse pulled the feature, I believe, a month or two ago because of controversy surrounding the content of uh, the movie, because essentially the, the conceit is that these people are, quote unquote, deplorables, right-wing uh, people who are being hunted by liberal elites. And so that created a lot of controversy for a uh, Many reasons, and uh, that movie is uh, pulled from the Blumhouse release schedule. However, I read the script for The Hunt, and I don't know if it's really masterclass, but at least it's a class in terms of everything we've been talking about so far and more in terms of breaking the rules of meta narrative. Specifically, I want to give, and this is admittedly going to be spoilers for the first half of uh, The Hunt, but The Hunt in part begins with uh, this character called Daisy. And the prose states, this is on page 12, so when uh, she's just waking up and uh, dazed and confused, the prose says, when we meet her, for now, that's what we'll call her, Daisy, and she will be our hero. And then we follow Daisy, uh, and uh, it's a little bit uh, hectic. We sort of uh, track all the different characters. It's, it's chaotic. They're being chased and hunted. And within four pages, as she talks with someone, what? What's happened? Her face vaporizes. Pieces of her skull and brain splatter all over Trucker, who is another character. And it says, everyone scatters from the crate, blah, 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 blah. No, she will not be our hero. So essentially, what was the point of this? Well, it was to lie to the audience. It was to give the surprise of actually kind of like Lost, because again, remember, it's a very similar opener. She wakes up in the forest and we believe, okay, this is like Jack. He's our hero. We're going to be following her and uh, him uh, and Lost through those adventures. And uh, this is sort of like a meta narrative where actually her brains are being blown up. And this running gag continues because we follow Trucker and uh, within two pages, he's dead. And uh, <laughs> within two pages, some other person is dead. And we think they're our hero. And then on page 30, we meet other people and there's an actual question in the script that says, are there our heroes? <laughs> and then by page 40, you still don't know who's uh, the protagonist of that story, which, I mean, can be an issue uh, on the story level, but at least on the meta level, it's definitely something unique that I've not seen before. Right. I mean, it's very Hitchcock psycho where you think that Janet Leigh is going to be the protagonist of this whole film, and then she gets murdered uh, in the shower mm -hmm. in that classic scene, and we kind of change to someone else. But they're really kind of pushing that to the absolute extreme, and you know, like, are there any heroes or protagonists in this film? Absolutely. And I feel like the the reason why they're able to pull it off here is because it's Damon Lindelof who if you have read the script for Lost, the pilot of Lost has a very similar opener. And so it actually, I believe, if I remember correctly, the script of Lost, it actually mentions Jack as our hero. And so they are using almost the same verbiage to trick you into believing that this character is going to be our hero in the same way that Lost Jack Shepard was our hero, and then subvert those expectations of the reader, of the audience that they themselves set up within their prose. So I feel like that was really clever in a, in a meta way. Yeah, and you do see a lot of this, like we've said with Shane Black, he has this thing in Lethal Weapon is like describing a house as the kind of house I'll buy when I make millions of dollars from this movie. You know, there's a lot of that kind of 
breaking the fourth wall to the audience within the writing of the description in order to help better inform what it is they are describing to the reader. But then there's also another level above and beyond that where a writer will literally write a note to the reader as an aside that isn't a part of the story itself or isn't contributing directly to something they're trying to communicate to you. This is kind of a note that says like, you know, attention reader or whatever. Uh, For example, there's one at the very end of the This Is Us pilot script by Dan Fogelman that essentially says the transition between these two timelines of the 70s and the present day is going to be seamless. And here's why, because, you know, we can fake this element for that. And it literally describes some of the production elements and why it's going to be, you know, uh, a big, huge twist for people. And I think he signs it M. Night Fogelman at the end. So, you know, it's, it's a it's a funny little aside to people to be like, don't worry, we got this kind of thing. Yeah. And he, I mean, he's done it multiple times. I feel like most of uh, his other scripts, whether it's Pitch or uh, Crazy Stupid Love, I think was that, mm-hmm. that was one of his, uh, they all have those weird twists with the same kind of twist. So he's definitely used to, to pulling that off. And uh, it ties back to sort of the script being meta aware that this is actually a script. It's a piece of content that's being read by people in the same way that you you underline the twist in This Is Us. You also underline the fact in, in The Hunt that, oh, this is our protagonist. Actually, it's not our protagonist. Why is the script of the prose underlining the meta context that, oh, this character is our protagonist? We organically know this, but the fact that they're underlining it suggests something else and they use it to their advantage in the surprise. And that's what you got to keep in mind is what is the goal of your script? Why are you using that technique of a meta awareness, whether that's Dan Fogelman, who presumably was also for production reasons, but nonetheless, it was also to underline, oh, this is going to be emotionally cathartic and uh, we're going to be successful in what we're pulling off. And the same way that the hunt, they know they're very confident. I mean, uh, that's Damon Lindelof in a nutshell. They're very confident about the tools that they're using, and they're not afraid to really go full uh, throttle on them. Now, zooming in a little bit to what I would call meta narrative or referencing the story within the story, you will find lines sometimes that refer to things that either have happened already or will happen uh, in the script. So you get stuff like, we've seen him before, the man from earlier in the black hood, or it's a red symbol. This will be important later. I think that's actually in hereditary at some point, those kind of lines, you know, it's basically saying to the reader, trust me, either that thing that I didn't quite tell you about before, well, this is it now and it's important, or here's a thing, keep that in mind because it's, you know, we're going to get back to that later kind of thing. Right. And one of the reasons why that's an important tool to use is because you want to avoid confusion. It ties back to uh, what I said earlier about holding the hand of the reader in the same way that when you're introducing character, you want that moment to be evocative. You also want those little moments to not slip by the reader's attention, especially if uh, a big reveal later on bases itself on a little tip bit from page 30. That was, uh, you know, something that most people have forgotten by now. And it's also worth repeating it. Like that red symbol that you mentioned, maybe by in the final page, you mentioned, oh, it was the red symbol that we saw on uh, the poll on uh, page 30. Maybe not giving a page number, but at least giving a context for that person. Or like you said, we've seen him before, the man from earlier in the Black Hood. Those are ways of helping the reader understand what's going on without them doing sort of the mental gymnastics of, wait, who is Jack again? Oh, right. Oh, let me flip back and uh, look at the context. Right. It's better to be a little bit on the nose and kind of call attention to this to the reader so that they remember rather than have them completely confused and scrolling back through the pages trying to find where this earlier reference was. <laughs> 
the last category we're going to talk about when it comes to editorializing your prose is the actual kind of format of the script itself or the document that you're using. That's probably one of the most underutilized tools at your disposal when you're leaning into sort of uh, doing meta elements within your script. And uh, one of the ways you can do it is by simply breaking the form and the format of that script. So I'm going to go back to goodie but an oldie, uh, rules of attraction once again. In Rules of Attraction, if you've seen the movie, there's a whole sequence towards the, the tail end of the movie with Victor, who's on a trip. He visits Europe and does a bunch of adventures uh, throughout the, the continent. And that footage was shot on location. It was improvised. It wasn't really a scripted. It was literally the director, the I believe the DP, and the actor going on a road trip for a month in, uh, in Europe. And there's a, there's a lot of footage, and uh, the director actually created like a short film about that. But in any case... On the script itself, you may wonder, okay, well, since it was improvised, how did he even write this? Well, he actually uses Victor's voiceover narrating with the footage as the description. And it literally says in the prose, in a series of shots, we are following Victor, an attractive Camden student, as he backpacks across Europe. The following scene is both dialogue and description. It's all composed of quick cuts shot entirely on mini DV and MOS throughout Europe. And then we get the whole monologue of Victor narrating. And uh, Roger actually played with the margins of the dialogue. The dialogue of Victor, which is actually dialogue, it's in you know italics and voiceover and all that stuff. The margins are the size of the prose instead of the, the size of the dialogue. So that's even visually on the page, you understand there's something different about this piece of dialogue. It really sticks out to you. It's something visual that only the physical piece of the document, the actual script, can play with in a way that film footage cannot. Right. And of course, this is based off of a novel by Brett Easton Ellis. And if you've ever read sort of American Psycho, he loves these techniques of blending, you know, what is kind of reality and what is not and, and playing with things like that on the page. And you're never really quite sure what's going on. So that's, that's a really an effective way to adapt that to a screenplay format. Absolutely. And uh, another element to watch out for in terms of that, let's sort of like meta formatting is the using fonts. A lot of people now, more and more I'm seeing uh, in terms of features and, uh, and specs and scripts, people playing with fonts within the actual script. I'm not saying writing a whole script on uh, in Comic Sans. I'm saying- <laughs> Wing using, Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm just saying partially using in the very specific ways, different fonts. So if, uh, going back to The Hunt, The Hunt opens with a text exchange using not the font of Courier, but using maybe Helvetica or some other font and different colors. If you look at the actual script, actually looks like what you might see on your phone. It uses different colors and, and fonts and so forth. And even the spacing of it is based on what you're seeing from the perspective of Athena. On the left side, you're seeing other people's text. And on the right side, you're seeing her text, i.e. your own text that you're sending. So that's another interesting way to use fonts. And later on in the, in the same film, when they read something off of the crate, the text that uh, illustrates what's on the crate is written in a completely different font and very large and very bold. So you really understand what's going on with that. And there are a lot of more traditional techniques, I guess, you'll find are, are really leaned into when it comes to editorializing and trying to create a specific feel or emotion on the page for people. You've got, you know, the use of certain punctuation like dashes, double dashes, ellipses, italics, underlines, bolds, putting kind of big gaps in the white space for certain effects. You know, that is relatively common even in screenplays that don't tend to editorialize a lot, but you'll see that, you know, especially the Damon Lindelofs of the world, the Shane Blacks, that kind of thing, uh, really like to use those to maximum effect to help kind of contribute to that, that feeling. 
Right, and that is to bring, again, the, the action forward to drive the momentum. If you read the opening of Lost, that's a prime example of uh, what you're talking about, Nick, in terms of driving the action forward. We're not missing a beat. We're seeing Jack running through the forest and into the beach and then uh, onto the wreckage, and we see him saving Claire and all those different people. And that's all you would think. It's all within one scene, one moment, but obviously it's different slug lines or different scenes, but the prose is written in such a way that it's almost a flowing continuously. It's like a linear description of what's going on, but based on what Jack is living through. It ties back to, again, staying in the perspective of that character and uh, giving us that cathartic story. Another thing you'll sometimes see are writers literally inserting diagrams or pictures into the pages of the script. I think one example of that is in Arrival or Story of Your Life, where they put the actual alien symbol in there so that you can see it because of how important it is to the script. Right. It's hard to describe exactly this uh, iconography without seeing it. So I feel like that was a, a great decision by Eric Heiser to include within the, the script of Story of Your Life those diagrams, those pictograms, so that the reader could visually understand, oh, this is what the alien language looks like. And uh, I feel like that was a, probably a brilliant move on this part. Yeah, totally. Although on the flip side of that, one thing I've seen before with some amateur writer script is including links uh, or URLs within the PDF of their script to be like, here is a picture of the thing I'm talking about. And I think that that's probably maybe one step a little bit too far and, you know, breaks the, the immersion of the script yeah. just a little bit too much if you're having to click off to links or uh, Spotify playlists or right. something like that. And uh, wait, so if my script is printed, how am I supposed to click that link? <laughs> Go and type it in manually, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, not going to so, happen. Yeah, uh, consider that for sure. And then another common thing that we, we will often see are quotes on the second page of the script. After the title page, there'll be some sort of quote from a philosopher or a musician or whatever it happens to be. And usually this quote is somehow related to the story, whether thematically or uh, to one of the characters, that sort of thing. I think they can come off a little pretentious sometimes, but uh, it is something that you do see quite often. Definitely. I've definitely used it myself in, uh, in one of my scripts, and it is entirely tied to the main character and the theme and uh, what the show is truly about. So I feel like if it is only used, like you said, it could be pretentious if it doesn't give you any insight, but it, it could be an interesting way or segue into the narrative and give you a framework to understand that story in the way that it should be uh, perceived by starting with a quote or some element that gives you an idea of what the story is about. All right, what are some of our takeaways? Number one, prose isn't literally about directing the action, it's about giving the reader an experience. Even though your script is a technical document, don't underestimate your prose's ability to create an entertaining, emotional, and cathartic story. Number two, good prose can help put the reader directly in the point of view of your characters and allow them to feel or experience the story through their perspective. Number three, the techniques you use in your script should inform and reflect the tone of your story and characters. And number four, everything is fair game, including breaking the fourth wall and talking directly to your reader, but make sure everything has a purpose, whether for story, character, or otherwise. And make sure you use the sometimes divisive techniques sparingly and with care. All right, and before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get exclusive content, cheat sheets, inside scoops, and we can keep producing a great show for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 156. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. In fact, you can send questions for our next week's episode because next week, what are we doing? We are doing paper scraps for October 2019. So we'll be answering all your questions, taking a look at the news around town and all that other good stuff. 
LB Jam Packed. So see you next week. Catch you then.